Welcome back, folks, to the Get a Grip on Lighting Conversation Series, focused on lighting controls with Ron Kuzmar and Webb Marsh. On today's show, they're speaking with Dan Blitzer. That's right. That's a hot blaster. If you're into lighting and you want to know about controls, you got a three-pack right there that's going to be super exciting. But before we go there, we got to go crazy. That's right. With TCPI.com, Greg, the craziest folks in lighting. You know what they're doing now, Mike? What are they doing? They're killing corn cobs. Ooh, I'm so happy about that. Yeah, I hate those corn cobs. Give me a proper bulb for that stuff, man. Those corn cobs are nasty looking. They're big. They often don't fit in the fixture. I can't tell you how many times in the past we've ordered corn cobs and tried to stuff them into a fixture, and they don't fit. So you got to downsize. Well, they burn out because they're too big or and they heat burn out. up. Yep. No longer. The corn cob killer from TCP, 200 lumens per watt, and... 5K, 4K, and a 22K is coming out for high-pressure sodium. So they're going to f- – and they fit. They're the size of a standard HID. So what does that mean? No messing around with the fixture. Just bypass the ballast, screw it in, and move on with your life. I'm changing the name. It's Ooh. no longer the corb co- corn cob killer. It's the mm-hmm. corn cob killer. That's right, folks, from tcpi.com. And, of course – Long-time members of the National Association of Innovative Lighting Distributors. That's right. Get educated. Get associated. Come on down to our convention in Dallas at the Dallas Market Center. Hooking up uh, September 13th. Is it September 13th, Greg? Do I have that right? You do. 13th through 16th. Go to org. All right. Welcome, everyone. Um, I am the self-proclaimed lighting control specialist here with my co-host, Ron Kuzmar. And we're chatting today with Dan Blitzer, who is a well, long-standing individual in this industry. He has um, a lot of experience and knowledge in lighting and controls, and that's why we've asked him to come here today to talk about uh, everything in lighting controls in our industry. But before we get into the conversation, Dan, do you want to just give a quick elevator pitch for who you are and what you do? Yes. I'm the principal of the Practical Lighting Workshop, which is a consultancy serving the lighting industry. I've been doing it for four decades in one form or another, and I am very excited to be your guest. This afternoon. Well, we're excited to have you here as our guest as well, and, and thank you for, for joining us. Um, you know, since you have so much experience in this industry, the, the very first question I want to hit you with is, you know, how do you feel we are right now with lighting controls? What would you say the current state of affairs are with everything? Well, the first thing that came to mind was a gently bubbling soup. Um, <laughs> And there are a couple of um, aspects to that metaphor, but one is that things are happening all the time, and that makes it very exciting, certainly for me, and makes it, practically speaking, one of the best of the industry in which to be engaged right now. Um, The other part of it is, I mean, it's hot, um, both in the sense of exciting and attractive, but also in the sense that you can get burned rather easily. And the soupy part of this is there are all kinds of things floating around and it is not a consomme in any sense. It is not a clear broth. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, and by the way, that... that was not scripted. <laughs> 
No, that was that was great. I mean, I think personally, I love metaphors or analogies to kind of explain things like that because it's such a complex system and it's such a an emerging scenario that we're dealing with right now. And I think soup really kind of hits the nail on the head with the the um, feeling that everybody has with it. You know, there it's not a puree in the sense that everything's blended perfectly. Um, and we don't ultimately know what the final flavor, the final look, the final um, sensation of it all is going to look is going to be. But at the same time, looking at it in contrast to the past, you know, where were we in the past? Were we a thin broth? Were we, you know, undiced uh, carrots? Like, what what was the past like to get to this point? Well, uh, I think I'm going to close the kitchen for a moment and (laughs) say, I think if we go back, if I go back to when I joined the lighting industry, uh, there might have been very few different languages spoken. I don't mean that in the technical sense that we would use it today with different controls protocols, but in a much more basic sense that there were Uh, theatrical controls, there were conventional mechanical switches, and there were uh, emergent, I think is a better, is as good a way of describing it, um, architectural controls. Uh, Relatively few players outside of theatrical. Um, And in the architectural world in which I was active initially, there was only one name that most people used for any form of dimming control. So would we say it was simpler? Certainly the case. Um, But at the same time, would you say it was limited? Absolutely. Uh, So, I mean, having that one... Right, so having that one name that everybody depended upon for the solution for lighting controls meant that they were limited to the capabilities of that one name. And so kind of comparing- I I didn't think of it in terms of a brand. So this wasn't really meant to say, no, there was only one place. When, When you said limited, my first reaction was, yes, it was very difficult to control all of the sources that were available designers at the time and Um, I guess one of my earliest active memories was the challenge of controlling uh, electronically transformed low voltage lighting, for example. Um, So So like MR16 lamps. Like MR16s for certain. Um, But, and fluorescent Mm -hmm. as well, and compact fluorescent especially. Although it's worth saying that um, sometime in the early 1960s, when I was at my uncle's home, he had dimmable fluorescent lighting behind a translucent screen in his dining room. Um, Now, I don't really know. That's a kind of an unusual solution, not for a lighting person, perhaps but for a dining room setting. And I don't know whether this is something he really liked or once he got it, he didn't know how to get rid of it. I honestly can't tell you that, Uh, but it was very impressive. 
Sure. So that was the way I think think of limited. Um, so it's more about and, design language capabilities as opposed to the actual components themselves in lighting controls. Yes, and any sense of a narrow market channel. Um, it, to some degree, it was more fluid in the sense that there were not luminaire manufacturers also in the lighting controls business until the mid 19. 80s architectural lighting architectural luminaire manufacturers. I think theatrical luminaire manufacturers were doing both long before it happened in architecture. Uh, so it was as if um, anybody's incandescent lighting equipment could be controlled with the available technology at the time. And although that is limited, uh, it also is rather uh, broad and universal in a respect that we don't really enjoy today. Not For sure. technologically, I mean, but commercially. Right. So, I mean, having that capability of, of knowing that if you say, I want this incandescent to dim, you will get what you expect from that, no matter what happens on the project, so long as a dimmer is provided. Is that what you're saying? And it's and it's line voltage. If and it's line voltage. Right, right. So right. so back in time, right. I mean, it was a simpler time. It was a little bit more easy to ensure compatibility with things. Um, there was some issues and challenges with fluorescent and um, magnetic transformed loads. But outside of that, if you had an incandescent and you really needed that good dimming range, you didn't really need a worry who was providing that dimmer. Correct. Um, I, I think that's, that's a fair statement um, all the way through. Um, but it's also true that I think our expectations, not so much for the technology, but for the outcomes, were also different than we have today. I think mm. if I think about what people, when people would want to invest in lighting controls, it would be, I think, primarily to create a more effective visual space. Restaurants, dining rooms, conference rooms, concert halls, you can think about the kinds of environments and what the objectives were. And it was only somewhat later, I think, that we started to consider whether we would adjust the lighting for um, human productivity, as opposed to say spatial productivity, people being well, able I think to that, see different tasks. I think that's a great distinction to make um, the past to the present right now, because right now a lot of lighting controls are so focused on energy code compliance or, or efficiencies that they're really kind of ignoring the bigger consideration that was at one point the only consideration for lighting controls, which was the aesthetics of it. You know, if you if you had a back of house space that you didn't really care much about, you just put a rocker switch on, which would on off. That's it. You didn't care about whether or not the lights in that space dimmed. Whereas with a with a banquet hall, a meeting room, a concert hall, you would want to have that dimming capability for the aesthetics of it, not necessarily that you are trying to reduce an energy footprint. No, but um, 
aesthetics to some degree doesn't quite capture the idea uh, in even commercial and institutional spaces that the appearance, the, the visual environment is also a source of economic benefit to uh, a restaurant is the best example or a hotel um, in terms of people actually being able to get the most out of that physical space. So yes, it is aesthetic, but it's not as if it's not economic as well. It's just a different kind of economics. And sure. I would argue it's that kind of economics that perhaps is going to reemerge as people recognize that the financial benefits for energy reduction are diminishing due to the ever-growing efficiency of the light sources that we can control, but the opportunities to make spaces more productive financially, um, I think, is not nearly as well exploited mm. as it might be. Now, and I think just to clarify, important. just to clarify what you mean by that, you know, so you think that there's further growth for energy savings right now? Yes, I do. And, I do. and I, do you I, have an idea of how to achieve that? Hire a good lighting designer. <laughs> Excellent point. <laughs> um, I, I think that, um, I, well, let me pose the question to you guys for a moment, just to hear what you have to say on this, because I've got an alleged surprise of my own. Um, <laughs> If we did not have energy codes, how big would the controls marketplace be compared to what it is today? Or how many people would use controls if they weren't forced to? I think that's an excellent question. And I would say that probably the, the market share would be dramatically less. There would be a lot fewer projects with advanced lighting controls than what we're seeing right now because of the fact that we have this energy code that we're trying to comply with. And it looks like Ron's agreeing with me. Yeah, it would, it, it, right. It, it would entirely depend on the environment, right? If we didn't have energy codes, it, everything would really hinge on the environment, restaurant, theater, right? What, what is the venue? What is the space? And that would define what the control solution required if one at all was. And it's also true that, that some commercial spaces might use basic occupancy sensing controls, sure. uh, provided they didn't have to go into the executive offices, um, but could, so to speak, be applied to everybody else. Um, we do some things like that. So um, as the, what I meant when I said there's more opportunity in energy-oriented controls, it is to, make them more friendly to the users, smarter Definitely. to make the automation aspect of it seamless, um, and perhaps to condition us to the use of less light overall. And we, I think- We I have- think, Go ahead, sorry. I, I think one of the things that you were really um, hitting on, which I think is something that's a recurring theme in this podcast, 
is the fact that getting owners, getting users to be more familiar and comfortable with it. I mean, that was one of the things that Ron was talking about in our lap in our previous one with Steve Mesh, where um, basically six months later, the owner requests Ron to come back and just disable all of the components that he programmed to meet energy code because the owner hates it. And so, you know, getting that buy-in, I think really is the, the component that we're missing right now to ensure energy efficiency has a long-standing presence. Yeah, and just to jump in on that real quick, I, I would also wanna ask you, Dan, how do you feel you know, you mentioned people's expectations, and I'd like to go back to that for a second and ask you how you feel users, not designers, users' expectations have changed. Because we see it a lot where, whether it's from the design side or from owner's side, you know, based on budget a lot, where they'll select fixtures or fixture types that are dimmable. Um, they'll put in controls, but maybe they're not dim to zero. And I understand the application doesn't always require that. But a lot of times we'll hear the, it's good enough right? It dims to 10%. It's good enough. Um, and I don't know how often the end users are consulted about some of this, but, you know, seeing what we see with control systems being pulled out more often than not, how do you, what do you feel sort of the end users expectations are for some of these systems? Let me start by saying, I think that industry's expectations suck. <laughs> no disagreement here. Uh, yeah, that's that is good. to say, I think that users have much higher expectations for satisfaction than yes. our industry has been able to deliver. Some of that may be that in a dynamic industry with evolving technologies, which has certainly been characteristic of the time I've been able to spend in it. Uh, we get used to a period whereby users are the test bed for the technology and things take a relatively long time to stabilize. I don't think that's unique to lighting. I think it's characteristic of an innovation or dynamic model of an economy. And I think we in the United States, by the way, are very fortunate to have that kind of a dynamic model, maybe not as dynamic as some other um, economies and countries, but certainly better than many, maybe better than most. But the point is that does condition you to things taking a while to work out all of the kinks. And so I think that this has somehow crept into the engineering expectations in companies that um, it's important to be first, it's important to be first and not worst, but it's not necessary to be best. Um, and there's certainly plenty of strategic writers who have made that point. That is to say, by the time you get your product fully perfected, 15 other guys have already eaten up the geography. Uh, and I think that this does promote a sense of, well, we'll get it out there and we'll improve it in version 10.5. Whatever, however long it takes to get there all the way through. So, I mean, that's one aspect of the expectation. But let me flip this around and say, my expectations are that I'm gonna go over and press a switch or a button on the wall and things will behave like they used to. But I think 
a younger generation, which is not so hard to find in my case, um, has an entirely different expectation, which is to flip out an electronic device, have ready, seamless access to multiple devices, some lighting, some others, and be able to press a button or have the system learn preferences and anticipate them. So those kinds of expectations, ideally, will drive another wave of innovation that uh, brings lighting into a connected and human responsive environment. Um, and of course, uh, if it isn't right, somebody someplace in uh, Silicon Valley will know that and will tell it what to do to make you happy. Um, or if that doesn't work, tell you what to do to make it happy. <laughs> there are some issues with there are some issues with this. But but when you ask what my expectations are, uh, my expectations are not that we're going to perfect our current model, but that we're going to evolve into a different, uh, technologically perhaps more complex, but uh, experientially simpler. So I mean, taking that, I mean that that's really great input because I I don't necessarily think a lot of people would disagree with what you're saying. But there is something that is unique to our industry that other industries um, haven't really had to deal with, which is the mandated components of new technology. I mean, a lot of requirements typically kind of follow the technology, whereas energy code has kind of led the technology um, in some instances where it'll request technology that doesn't necessarily exist everywhere yet. And so because of that, there's a price tag associated with it that people may not understand why that price tag exists. Unlike, let's say, for instance, a, a car, an automobile, you know, people understand that a car is going to cost a certain amount of money because there's, you know, requirements, safety measures, um, emissions requirements that come out that make sure that the vehicle meets uh d doesn't make the world worse and also doesn't kill people out of you know just not working correctly whereas and in, they in fail totally if that's your standard of of what they're supposed to do cars kill people and they clearly help pollute the environment um absolutely but i mean i think the thing that standard, is, we're not so bad no I, but i mean you know, I think that's a good point. Also, a good distinction there with energy code kind of leading the industry as opposed to the industry leading the energy code, you know, but at the same time, the consumers, the people who are paying for the product don't actually see the direct link between money and satisfaction. And so as a result, we have sort of this mandated beta testing that everybody's going through right now. It's like, okay, yeah, you know, you need to have this. I, I don't disagree with you in principle, but I do disagree sure. with you. I'll say I don't, don't pretend to be in the heads of regulators in California, but mm -hmm. I, it's my understanding that the national or international codes do not attempt to mandate a technology and do not attempt to impose an unproven technology. Whether they're capable, whether they get it right every time, mm -hmm. and I guess um, 
outdoor controls are with the idea of setbacks and the, and the need to have some sort of presence-based resumption of a higher light level, that's proved fairly problematic so far. Uh, so there are some good examples in which mandates, notably in California, have created all kinds of problems. Uh, but I think the issue with codes is that individual business owners, principally, not so much consumers, but individual sure. business owners don't feel any ownership of the problem of wasted energy. Sure. And because they don't have any ownership, you need some method of tying their behavior or their decision making to the consequences. Uh, one thought, of course, would be significantly higher energy or carbon costs, at which point we would see, in my opinion, owners asking for controls. Right. But absent that, our only choice is to force people to do what's necessary because they won't do so, it themselves. So, I mean, the solution to, to this challenge then from what I'm hearing from you is to make it so that an intelligent lighting control solution is the cheaper alternative to whatever exists outside of having a, an advanced lighting control system, which is not currently the, the perspective. I don't know if it's an, if that's an agreeable thing or not to owners that, um, you know, okay, I buy an advanced lighting control system. It's going to be more expensive and, and therefore it's, cheaper to just get rocker switches everywhere. Um, I, I would argue that maybe that is the general consensus from an owner's standpoint that buying an advanced lighting control system is not going to solve any cost measures on their end. And so if we create a scenario such as charging them for how much how much carbon they're consuming or how many how much emissions they're generating or how much wasted energy they're they're develop they're creating then they would go oh having an advanced lighting control solution would lessen the cost of that therefore i should invest in this I, the only modification i would make to that is to say then an energy focused control system Sure. It certainly makes sense for that. Um, yeah. If we if we get a theatrical the system installed, then <laughs> that would be a whole other issue. Uh, well, no, I, what I meant by that is uh, one of the products that tends to get removed at owner's requests are occupancy sensing devices. Yep. Um, and that's a pure energy play. It's it's not a complex technology. It just doesn't work consistently enough for people to feel comfortable with it. Um, well, I, I also think it's a lack of training, right? Not to not to step on your toes, but I, I think part of it from end user standpoint, based on my experiences, is a lack of proper training. M most sensors get installed and they get left in their adaptive technology mode, right? So they adapt themselves based on the time duration of how long they stay on, uh, and the time uh, that the timeout settings and a lot of people leave it in that sort of uh, adaptable learning mode 
And what ends up happening is a lot of these systems are commissioned at the end of construction. There's a lot of people around, a lot of people around, a lot of people around, and then everyone disappears. And the sensors start to do weird things and the owners come in and then all of a sudden the sensors aren't responding the way they want because for the longest time there was no one in the space. And it takes 30 days or so for these sensors to relearn. So I, I think a lot of times there's, there's more case to put sensors into specific settings. This is a 10 minute timeout. This is this, this is set for this range because those adaptive sensors will adjust themselves. So I think a lot of times I, I, I end up being able to convince people to leave the sensors in by tweaking the settings and then asking them to live with it for 30 to 60 days. And then we'll go back if we need to, but more often than not, we can get them to a happy place. So how would you create a rule to resolve this problem? Would you say manufacturers shouldn't ship sensors in adaptive mode? Uh, installers should not select adaptive mode? Uh, that the system should be put into a, let's call it a safety mode, one where it isn't too long, it isn't too short, and then you get it recommissioned after three months? Yeah, I mean, I, I think a happy medium would make a lot of sense, you know, whether that's a 10 minute timeout, a 20 minute timeout, whatever sort of, you know, all the everyone decides is the right thing as far as an industry, manufacturers and users. Um, but I think that would make more sense than shipping them in adaptive because they, they get left like that. I mean, most of these installations, when there's not an integrator involved, are installed by the electrician. And the electrician doesn't know or doesn't care or doesn't care to know, right? And so that's part of the problem. So if sensors were shipped with very specific settings that we knew were just going mm -hmm. to work out of the box and not be adaptive, I think that would be a better play unless there was an integrator involved who could then reprogram them later. Mm -hmm. um, now, when you say most sensors are shipped in an adaptive setting, does that include, for example, luminaire installed sensors that would be in a typical office or school or wall box controls? Or are we talking about something more sophisticated than I'm thinking of? No, so I'm, I'm thinking specifically of ceiling mounted, wall mounted aux sensors, um, even some of the switch sensors, depending on the manufacturer, the, the switch sensors act the same way, but specifically ceiling mounted and wall mounted aux sensors, um, those tend to ship in an adaptive mode. I, I'm not as familiar with all of the manufacturer you know, sensors directly on fixtures, uh, as opposed to, you know, wall mount and ceiling mount sensors. Uh, and, and I don't know either. It's my, it's always my sense that if you're going to put a sensor in every luminaire in a classroom or every other luminaire in a classroom instead of a single one or two in that same thousand square foot space, uh, you're going to economize on it if you possibly can so that people won't object to putting in a dense array. Um, and if we get used to dense array of sensors, we have much more capability, which is the other thing we really didn't talk about, which is the ability of sensors, not just to condition space for light and heat, but also to give us an understanding of occupancy patterns so that the space itself becomes more productive, not just the people working in it um, or consumers 
selecting it rather than another restaurant or another hotel. But so, I mean, the the interesting thing here is that earlier on in this conversation, Dan, you mentioned that controls should be more intuitive to the point where it makes predictions on what people want for the lighting in the space. And Ron here is saying that that predictive element is actually causing issues. And so, you know, how do we reconcile that? Because I, I agree. I mean, ultimately, you know, in, in a thousand years with lighting controls, when we're living on a different planet, maybe the controls will be so sophisticated that it just reads your mind when you walk into a space. But right now it seems as though we're so in such an alpha mode, such a, such a preemptory mode of testing this technology that we're not really good at predicting spaces. Okay. I don't disagree with that. I thought I said, this is what I think will happen, not what I think Oh, what, what, what you, sure, sure. That, no, 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 but, but, but I think, I, you know. Not, but, but can't we combine the two? Wouldn't yes. A, wouldn't it be nice to have a default setting that, ha, that resets after or goes adaptive after a significant, you've acquired enough information? Um, now, you're going to invest in the hardware and the software to get this right. Uh, and the question is, will, will most users be happy with systems that know better than they do? We, we will, I mean, it's easy to say of a conventional wall switch occupancy sensor, if you leave the room and forget to turn off the lights, it will do it for you. That sounds really neat. Um, it's an entirely different one to say, okay, we now know that you routinely stay in this space. 80% of the time, you don't spend more than two hours in that space. Uh, and so we are going to hypothetically um, cut the timeout period to one minute because we know that when you leave, you don't come back um, for something like that. And then that becomes, has, if you will, it isn't just the sensor that learns, it's the occupant that learns what the sensor knows or what the sensor think is, thinks it knows. But there is very much a human dynamic that we're talking about here. And I, but I do sense that this is in part the way we collect some of the waste energy, whether it's human energy or uh, electrical energy, uh, as we eliminate the waste in manned checkout counters, for example. Uh, all, those, all those wasted jobs. And, um, I mean, I think there are downsides to all of this. <laughs> Yeah, well, of course. And and I mean, you know, as we move forward, there is going to be some hiccups and some issues with how technology affects us and and are just, you know, ec economically or physiologically or whatever. But, you know, I think one of the things that um, technology that gets ex that gets adopted more readily seems to be more subversive, more less no or less noticeable than, uh, you know, say, for instance, with lighting, we have 
the difference between daylight dimming and daylight switching. People hate daylight switching because it's so noticeable and it's so aggressive. Whereas daylight dimming, for the most part, if it's done well, is really hard to notice if you're if you're if you're in a closed loop daylight sensing system where it's maintaining a specific book candles on your test service, you're actually not going to notice when there's a bright light pouring in and and adjusting your electric light. So um, from a end user standpoint, I would make the argument that the less noticeable we have lighting in being controlled, the better. But at the same time, the energy savings as a result of that may be less than if we were more aggressive and more noticeable with our our control solutions. So if somebody had the, uh, had the information, and maybe they do, you could calculate what the balance is between controls that get overridden or removed eliminating energy savings altogether from sure. those that compromise to some degree on the degree of savings. And this was commonplace when you're thinking about, should I dim my electric light down below 10% uh, in a daylight controlled system? Mm -hmm. Because people might object to looking up at the lights and seeing that they were totally dark and can either being confused or unhappy about that. And so it was commonplace to leave at a 10% dim level quite a substantial amount of perceived brightness in the space all the way through. Um, and I don't think those are bad judgments. They're, they're perhaps more difficult to get right because people's expectations um, are different. But, but I think that's... Slightly... Yeah, go for it. Go ahead. No, 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 no ask okay. your question. So to what degree do you think that owners and specifiers appreciate the risk of failure or incomplete performance with control systems, either simple or advanced? Because um, risk is notoriously difficult to include in decision-making and practically speaking, I think we're talking about uncertainty, meaning that risks of, of failures are very difficult to calculate unless it's a product fault, which might be reasonably calculable uh, on the basis of the manufacturing tolerances. But with the issues of problems of expectations versus specifications and installation, so forth, do you think people are sensitive to risk? And what does it take to make designers especially younger designers, sensitive to the to risk. I'm, I'm going to punt this over to you, Ron, since you're the one who really is in the trenches with this sort of challenge. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, that is a great question about risk, because in my mind, I'm not adverse to the risk because I, I see the, the rewards, right? The potential reward to it. So I'm not adverse to it. But both, I also in, have a, both in getting them to work and in fixing them when they don't. Well, right. I mean, it's both on my end, right? But no, I mean, I, I also, right, compared to the average specifier, right, I would like to believe that I have a higher knowledge of controls than they do. So I'm able to sort of think through 
all of the different scenarios and I will I will look at product specification not only in controls but in fixtures based on what I am expecting the results to be and I know for architects that is not always true because they are basing fixture selection on what's pretty right so I'm not always as worried about the physical aesthetics I still am but not as much if I need a very specific performance from a fixture mm -hmm. so that is a great question because based on my experience with various specifiers and architects, I would say that they fear the risk of getting it wrong and they will avoid controls at the risk of getting it wrong because they want the next project and they want the next project. And I understand that. And I agree with that. I, I, I think if we're talking about people in a mature stage of their careers, that's probably, I would, I would agree with that. The question's not mine alone. Uh, it's one, uh, that was posed to me by Brienne Musselman, who uh, runs education for the IES. And she was thinking specifically about young people learning about controls for the first time and having grown up in a much more automated personal environment where expectations for success with controls might exceed the likelihood that commercial installations, more complex, more prone to uh, lack of control in some respects in the construction and installation process could lead a young designer to overcommit. And this, this was a conversation that, that she and I had, and I really liked it because I think it, it, it said, if you envision the promise of controls, you have a hard time anticipating the problems of controls and they they go sort of hand in hand that way i i i understand what you're trying to say and and to a degree i agree with you but i think one of the the challenges here which is a generational perspective i think is that young designers rarely are the ones who are making the final decision with lighting controls. So they may have the starry-eyed, um, whimsical approach to lighting controls, but they're rarely the ones who are actually being asked to assemble the design for a complex lighting control system. And I would argue that actually designers, young designers, inherit their principles or their senior designers' wariness of lighting controls and develop the same workflow that their seniors have, which is to be terrified of lighting controls or to have an established relationship with a manufacturer's rep, an integrator, some expert in lighting controls and rely upon that individual instead of developing their own knowledge base and trusting their own awareness to lighting controls. And it seems like Ron, you're agreeing with me. Yeah, I, I, I really think, you know, younger designers could really benefit from sort of making friends with integrators, right? And, and being able to bounce ideas off of people and, and, you know, ask some of those pointed questions. But I would also take it that step further that we need to see more design firms, not necessarily bringing integrators onto their team, but bringing control specialists onto their team so that as they're going through design for projects, there is a controls person in-house that they can talk to who's been in the field before, who maybe was an integrator, can assist on smaller projects, 
who can take a look at some of these things and not only help the younger people, but also help sort of the senior um, staff as well to understand the benefit of controls, help them with the design. And I, I'd like to see more of a shift that way that more design firms bring on controls experts in-house. So, Ron, if you were to think about the project holistically and thought about the cost of an integrator added into the team, where would you carve out the redundant work that the integrator, inter if, if you bring an integrator on board, yep. um, two things should happen. One is the project goes more smoothly. So there is a benefit in terms of faster and um, higher percentage attainment of goal. Yep. But at the same time, the integrator was doing certain kinds of things, presumably, that somebody else was doing and no longer needs to do. Before, before we get into that, the answer, is that I just, an illusion? Well, I want to, I want to clarify, um, what work specifically are you referring to? Cause I'm curious if my, my, I'm referring to whatever Ron wants to say it is. <laughs> <laughs> so it, no, I would, I would say, right. I, I'm looking at this specifically integrators should be brought onto projects because here, my take on it is is there should be a controls person on staff at the design team. And that person does not have to be the integrator, but they can assist with the controls design or the at least basis of design, right? But then the integrator who's coming on to the project, they are then responsible for ultimately what that final plan is, right? It still has to go through and be approved, but if you know, if the if the sort of designer prefers manufacturer A, but the integrator prefers manufacturer B, and both will perform the job flawlessly, then that job of the integrator should be to choose the components that they want to work with to create the system that's gonna that's going to work for the space and achieve the goal. Because there are, you know, there is more than one answer. Not always, but there is often more than one answer. Um, and if the integrator is the person in the trenches working with the electrician, creating all of the drawings, the one lines, the risers, they should be comfortable with the equipment that they're using. Um, and they should be able to make some substitutions. Again, everything has to be approved. I, I don't want to take anything away from that because we have to meet design intent. But I, in that manner, I don't think we're really I don't think we really have redundant work because some some basic controls design still has to be I didn't think put that you had the redundant work that was remember I didn't think that the integrator was redundant my yeah. question was isn't somebody else's work now redundant or is this simply a necessary role that didn't exist before and therefore things just didn't get done yeah, I, I would say this that is was a necessary really role. I don't think we're in it. Yeah. Okay. All the way I mean, I think, I'd so, say uh, I think it's a necessary role that didn't exist, the, that, right? The this, thing about an integrator is, is that it's a stopgap. An integrator really fills in the missing components, the missing labor, everything that theoretically the contractor should be installing, commissioning a system, but they 
for the most part, when it comes to advanced systems, they, they just don't have the skilled labor to be able to do that. So that's why they tap an integrator. All right. So to, to what extent do control specialists at lighting sales agencies provide an effective resource for what you just described, which so, is some so, form of yeah, go for it, Ron. bridge? No, I think we both have an answer on this. So I, I have a specific take that may not go over with every, you know, sales rep, but as a sales rep, yeah, right, they, <laughs> they very much are focused on the equipment that they sell, right? And as an integrator, I don't care about sales rep A or sales rep B. I do. I like him. I like everybody, <laughs> but right. I don't care about that control solution if it's not the right one for the project. And I get it that a sales rep is trying to sell their system onto a project. Whereas as an integrator, we can take that road and say, well, I want a little bit from column A, a little bit from column B, and I'm going to steal this from column C, and I'm going to put together a cohesive system that I think will function better and meet the objectives better. So it, it's tough because that person at a rep agency has to exist because they have to be able to assist the, specifi the specifiers and the design teams until these design teams bring on their own people. So that, that role unfortunately does not go away anytime soon yeah and and, and i, I mean uh, so basically with with sales representatives you know i i agree with what you're saying ron i think you know i beat up on sales reps just like everybody else but i think sales reps do have a place in the world right now especially as a, an assistant to the lighting design designer so that they can be a resource so that if the specifier is like, well, is this going to work? The sales rep should be able to say yes or no, this is this is either going to work or no, you should look at a different system. You know, maybe not my system. Maybe they won't say the name of a system that that because there's some competition, there's some money to be made there. But a good sales representative should be able to, to communicate clearly like, no, this isn't a good match. I'm, I'm not going to give you a a resource that makes sense. So talk to somebody else. And that's where an integrator who's a little bit more independent has the capability of transcending that yes, no criteria to yes, and instead of just no. So um, and yeah. some, some integrators um, go on to become specialists within sales agencies. I do think it's, it's a mouthful to say a control specialist within a sales agency but it's a somewhat more accurate term than a sales representative, mm -hmm. given that the technical background that at least most of the ones that I've had the pleasure to speak with, uh, and even those that I've had no pleasure to speak with, um, bring an awful lot of experience mm -hmm. and broader technical knowledge than just the specific product lines that they happen to be representing at that time. But well, I, and I think, Oh, no, go ahead. Fin finish your thoughts. Sorry. I've got a two part question. The first part of the question is to what degree do you think that there is a degree of commoditization in upper mid complexity controls? So I'm not talking about a dedicated uh, high end project, but something um, in the upper middle of the market range, to what degree do you think there is meaningful, um, 
I could say commoditization, or I could say um, common common capabilities uh, and reasonably established performance. Just to clarify, multiple what, brands and manufacturers. What you're what you're defining here is not necessarily a project that's code minimum and therefore just shooting for the bottom of the barrel, but not necessarily that upper echelon that has all the bells and whistles, but rather something that tries to to kind of take, yes. you know, back of house spaces that's are going to be code minimum, but there you've got some front of house spaces that want some elevated and you may even have like a color changing facade or two. Yeah. So the color changing yeah. facade may not be part of it, but the assumption is that code minimum is already more or less commoditized. Uh, and it's and a, that that above is that. An, it's a very and that's an appealing feature for many owners but it's something that that's a little bit more demanding than that um to what degree should owners say yes it isn't really a matter of selecting a product and brand Can, I would say that there's actually more, there's probably more brand um, al alignment or, or preference in this category than in other categories. Because with code minimum, for instance, it, it really doesn't matter which brand you're going with so long as it's not on your blacklist if you've had a bad experience with a brand. Um, whereas when you get into this sort of mid to upper tier of of control solutions, you do see a little bit of um, favoritism because of either the aesthetics of the, the user interfaces, the keypads, the touch screens, whatever, or maybe some past experience that was positive in which you say, no, I want, I would rather stay with this manufacturer because in the past they've done great things. So that would argue uh, among other things, for the uh, role of the agency that happens to support the brands for which there is preference. Now, clearly the marketplace is going to be filled with firms that have different preferences. Um, but my own experience says that having the right team involved, and that team means going all the way through from the design and manufacture of the products through its specification, installation, commissioning, and troubleshooting uh, is probably more important than some small elements of technical performance. And I believe this is true in every aspect of design and construction that savvy specifiers uh, are very conscientious of the risks they take when they stray away from a proven team and product for something. Um, because surely when think... you go through best practices, one of the ones that's right up at the top is work with a good, knowledgeable, experienced team um, yes. because you can't anticipate everything that's going to go wrong. And it's nice to have some people who do that all the time and whose judgment you trust. Which I think goes back to your earlier point, which is the abject terror that designers have is kind of fostering this manufacturer brand approach to lighting controls design because of the fact that 
people, owners and specifiers and architects, they're all afraid of the risk involved with lighting controls. And because of that fear of risk, they are leaning more into having control specialists in-house for manufacturers reps instead of control specialists in-house for specifiers. I, I suppose, I think the, um, from a manufacturer's point of view, if you, if you have a, a resource in your sales agency, you know where they're spending their time. Whereas mm -hmm. if it's in a design firm, they may or may not like you. Um, and if you screw up, they may never like you. And just right. so that we're on the same page here, I don't recall using the expression abject terror, but if I did, it would have to do with plumbing. That is, that is my term. I, 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 I will take ownership of that term, abject terror, um, only because I have, I have worked with people who I see abject terror when being asked about lighting controls. I, I, I think it's fair to say that um, you can look at a physical luminaire, you can look at its performance data and have a pretty good idea of what you're looking at and what it will do. Um, you can't understand the lighting effects from either of those unless you've experienced lighting visually yourself. But controls are several steps more abstract from this. And although I like to say that the uh, control pad, keypad switch, is the point at which a consumer interacts with a lighting system. You know, it's very few consumers who actually go up and hug their chandeliers. Um, <laughs> but everybody, um, either touches a switch, touches a phone, or gives a command, hey, Alex, I mean, if you prefer men to, to women, um, you know, turn on the lights and, and make them the way I want. So I was having a conversation um, and happened to have mentioned, must have been Mozart in passing, and all of a sudden, piece of music shows up from the from the Wi-Fi extender that I used to get the computer in a different part of the room. And then I made some snide comment about it and it shut up and didn't go back on again no matter what I asked it to do. So this is an example of anticipating your thinking. Uh, if you want to call it artificial intelligence, um, I've already concluded that my intelligence is artificial. Its intelligence is something well beyond mine, um, all the way through. So anyway, I think with this issue of to what degree we have brand preference then poses the next question. So I understand preference for brand, but are there clear, lines that demark certain kinds of projects and control requirements that will say, okay, and if this is what I want the controls to do, these are the one or two brands I'm going to work with to work through the details. Because you're ultimately selecting, I think, and maybe this isn't true, but I do, my experience is 
that you, you make the brand decision sooner, considerably sooner in controls than you do in luminaires where you could be well down in the process doing visual mock-ups and pricing before you've selected which brand of luminary you're actually going to be working with, I, including those with fundamental differences. I think the thing here is that while yes, if controls and luminaires were started at the same time in a project timeline, that would be true. But the, the inherent challenge here is that lighting controls for a large percentage of projects are done long after luminaires are selected. And so it's more that people have this rushed approach to lighting controls. And that's why there's this jump to a brand than there is um, this, you know, pre-selection so, at the outset of a project. Fair enough. But if you look at the timeline mm -hmm. as a whole, regardless of whether it's six months or 16 months, but you know, from 0% to 100%. So if controls are compressed and luminaries have a longer one, would you still say that the controls are selected? Um, yeah. So the brand, the brand with controls is selected earlier in that timeline of the design process for a controls solution than a luminaire solution. With a luminaire solution, you may say, okay, I want down lights, I want linears, I want, you know, color changing, right. but you don't necessarily go, I want brand A, brand B, brand C in that same thought process. Whereas with lighting controls, I would say because of the fact that most manufacturers vary in their functionality, in their aesthetics, or just in their interoperability or integration with other systems, you kind of have to think of a brand when you're starting to design a system, unless it is a very basic system that it, it that is assumed that everybody can meet. Do you think, returning to the very early part of our conversation, yeah. that the controls marketplace is becoming more commodified? And I don't mean that in a pejorative sense. I mean it in the sense of product performance can be specified within a reasonably well-defined band and have multiple manufacturers deliver to that specification. Do you see that? increasing, decreasing, or in nowhere in sight. Ron, what's your experience? <laughs> so I, at the moment, uh, I feel personally like it's nowhere in sight. I would like to see it getting better. <laughs> My biggest problem is that manufacturer A and manufacturer B for lighting fixtures tend to come up with their own control solutions. And the problem is, is that the control solution more often than not is manufacturer specific. They're using proprietary controls in order to really fix this problem and have additional controls manufacturers so that we have multiple options. We need to get away from proprietary controls within fixtures, within sensors, um, so that we can open up the 
controls world to additional manufacturers. And I, I think that's one of our bigger problems right now. And anyway, so, so anyways, we're, we're at time on this recording, but, um, you know, just to kind of loop back to the beginning of our conversation, you know, really from the beginnings of lighting controls, it seems as though the more recent trends are very different from where we started out in lighting controls design in this industry and the architecture because of the fact that it used to be a much simpler um, format, preference, style, however you want to frame it, to now it's a little bit more open. There's a little bit more capability, more possibilities, but also more language, more, more style and choice to it all. And so I think with that, you know, the complexity makes it more challenging and, and more, um, more unique in contrast to where we've been. So perhaps one of the things that, that is being proposed here is that everybody, owners, specifiers, manufacturers need to kind of reset their perspective on lighting controls in our industry because of the fact that if we keep thinking back to well we just had a rocker switch on the wall you know oh you know with incandescent dimming it was just who cares who's providing the dimmer um now it's it's much more complex and and needs an expert involved to make sure that it that it meets people's expectations unlike where it used to be i wouldn't disagree with that at all and I would ask if you, if you, you, it's at the end, so you can edit it out if you want. But <laughs> sure. the um, PNNL um, uh, produced a, I think, quite good um, webinar for education mm -hmm. that talks about many of the things that we've been talking about. Problems, uh, it, or as I like to say, promise, problems, and progress. And um, I completely agree. I was I attended that, and it was fantastic. And I highly recommend our listeners check that out. I believe it's available on Leducation, Leducation's website, or go to PNNL and get a bootleg copy, or that <laughs> email Dan. <laughs> Well, Dan, thank you so much. Really appreciate you taking the time today to chat with us. I mean, I think, you know, these kinds of conversations are essential if we're going to get anywhere in our industry to, to affect change, to make people think about lighting controls a bit more. So, um, you know, really appreciate your input and, and knowledge and experience being present. Thank you very much for having me. Have a great day, guys. We got the corn cob killer, yo. What's going on with TCP, Greg? Woo! Well, 200 lumens per watt is a corn cob killer and the compact size. So that's why it kills the corn cobs. Because most of those cobs, when you need to get a big 400 watt bomber or whatever, you need a huge lamp and then you need all these, the size and it doesn't fit. With TCP, it fits. The corn cob killer fits 200 lumens per watt, 22K, 4K, and 5K. Stop making your fixtures look like a UFO invasion with these damn corn cobs. <laughs> I feel like I'm in that movie with that's by Steven Spielberg. Uh, what's it called? You know, uh, Galaxy Five Thousand or whatever the hell it was called back in the day. With these, go with the Corn Cob Killer by TCP. That's TCPI.com. And of course, Greg, who are we hooking up with at our convention? In terms of 
Arclight Summit, buddy. brother. Come on. <laughs> you got it. We're tying it up with the Arclight Summit. September 13th. Come on down, folks, to the Dallas Market Center. That's right. Go to NALD.org. Hook up with us and all the good folks in the National Association of Innovative Lighting Distributors. And you made it to the end. So we got to throw a shout out to Dan Blitzer, who's a big supporter of the show. Thank you, Dan, for coming on and being with Ron and Webb. Doing a great job, those two. Oh, my God. I think we're going to be out of a job soon, Greg. <laughs> Take us down. Thanks for listening, folks. Bye for now.